Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The Titanic and its fate were a familiar ghostly presence in my childhood. My grandfather, Jack Lytle, was a shipfitter who worked on it when it was in the yards. He later cut his arm on a sheet of rusted metal, developed septicemia, and died at the age of 28, leaving my mother and five other children at the height of the Depression. There's a photograph of him as he leans on a hull, probably not that of the doomed ship, but it would be nice to think so, with a direct, challenging, what-are-you-looking-at expression as he juts his chin out at the camera. So this story and its twists and surprises and speculations comes from a personal, inside place. I grew up in Mullockboy, Island McGee, north of Belfast, on the Antrim coast, in a cottage without main services. We carried a bucket to the pump at McElroy's post office for water. How my mother managed with my dad working as a bricklayer in England, I have no idea. Soon after we finally left, the thatch roof blew off and the farmer who owned it kept his tractor in it until another gale blew the walls down. By light of the oil lanterns whose soot-stained dimness I can still summon up, we had long evenings to listen to the radio, which must have been connected to a battery of sorts. It carried the voices of the outside world to us. There were other voices there too, a a rustle in the shadows, for it was known as the Witch's House. Some of the Island McGee or Scottish witches, who were tried for their lives at Carrickfergus Castle in 1710, lived or covened there. In the fields nearby were memories of other ghosts in the stone monuments of the Dolmens, whose prehistoric tombs and altars watched us later people of this still remote, windswept, sea-lapped, clannish, enclosed little world. Offshore, past Portmuck Island, accessible at certain tides by a causeway, past the dark, man-made headland of that castle, lay the entrance to the Lagan and the Harland and Wolf shipyard, from which the great ship slipped from the ways and set to sea. The pride of a proud city, the largest and most magnificent ship ever built, was unsinkable, and yet a few months later it was 13,000 feet under the North Atlantic, entering legend freighted with 1,500 dead. Each of the dead left countless loved ones behind, to grief, to despair, to anger, and in others a desire for explanation and perhaps, perhaps, justice. The Titanic. Danny, did you fall asleep six months ago and just wake up? We were cover to cover on that story for weeks. The readers had their fill. There's other news. There's a war in the Balkans. There's always a war in the Balkans. New Mexico and Arizona officially joined the Union. Who needs them? Motion pictures are now so popular they even have their own magazine. Ooh, they'll never catch on. I'm trying to do us both a favor here, Swanson, and your boss, Mr. William Randolph 
first two. Now, this is a story we can swing for the fences on. I know you're busy, but hear me out. I was walking past 911 Broadway today, and I see this young woman exit. Her shoulders are shaking. She's in tears. So you ride up to Little Miss Lonesome, like one of the nights of the round table, Manhattan Branch? 911 Broadway was the White Star Line booking office for the Titanic. I follow a hunch. I always had a nose for a story, and I decide to go after her. Are you listening to me? <laughs> she heads across the city to 18th Street and 12th Avenue, Pier 59. Pier 59, remember that. Pier 59 is where the Titanic passengers would have disembarked if the ship had made it to New York instead of you know, the bottom of the Atlantic. She steps off the sidewalk and... Hey, lady! Could have been under the wheels of that streetcar. I didn't see it. You sure? Let me go. You can't walk the streets of New York without to keep your eyes wide. It's a free-for-all out here. Are you okay? I think, yes. Thank you. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and hell gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. The sea gave up... That's uh, my father's favorite Bible quote. He's a tough old Irishman. And like a lot of tough old Irishmen, he's cracked about religion. He, he worked in the, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. That's, uh, that's the other side of here. It's on the East River. And he was a catcher. He had this big mitt like a... Well, I'm guessing by that accent, you don't know baseball. Any, anyway, they would zing these red-hot rivets at him about this big. And he would catch them, put them in place for the guy with a hammer. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> It was his job to make sure that every rivet counted against any ship he worked on, splitting open like a rusted can of beans and going down like, uh, well, like the Titanic did six months back. <laughs> Your old man was a saloon keeper in the Bronx. He wouldn't know a rivet if it hit him in the head. Color, journalistic license. <clears throat> I don't think it's a coincidence, miss, that you came here directly after leaving the White Star Line office in tears, which company is also in the Titanic business, or was. You followed me here. What's your interest in that ship? Why should I tell you? Uh, Let me pass. You see this newspaper? These are words. They gotta have something to put between the ads for the corsets and the cough syrup. Some poor sap has to write those words. That's what I do. I can't write like Hamlet, but I do my best. <laughs> write like Hamlet? <laughs> you know what I mean. You work for a newspaper? Uh, Pulitzer, Chandler, Hearst, all those guys. I put my time in for them. Now, I'm freelance. You walk the streets looking for stories. The street is a theater with a better cast of characters than you could ever dream of. That couple over there looking into each other's eyes. That guy... Beating his dog. Hey, you, knock that off. That drunk, face down in the gutter. Everyone is a story. And a beautiful young woman with something on her mind. I owe you my story. I saved your life. You saved my... You did no such thing. I saved you getting a couple of bruises, okay? That counts for nothing. What if I don't have a story? Or one I want to share. Well, before we get to negotiating... I'm not negotiating with you. I need to point out that the market for Titanic pieces has cooled a touch, but uh, something in the human interest line coming at it from the right angle. Good sell. 
I just spent 20 minutes trailing you across town. You don't owe me two or three minutes so I can tell you what you're worth? What? I'm... Name's Malloy. Danny Malloy. You? Hinton. Emma Hinton. Two minutes. Make the pitch. Give me the hustle. Do the monkey dance. <laughs> <laughs> My fiancé, Henry George Barton, was a musician. Just before the Titanic sailed, he was asked to join the ship's orchestra. The money he'd make on that one voyage would help us set up home. Wife of doomed musician. Fiancé. Comes to New York City in memory of Hero, who played nearer my god to thee as the great ship succumbed to the deep. No. No? That's the point. That's why I'm here. No one seems to agree on what they were playing at that moment. That's what she said. Her exact words. Is she right? She's right. You checked? I checked. Some say it was a dream of autumn. It was the very first piece of music we shared. A waltz. A tea shop. One of those grey, endless English afternoons. The gas lamp seemed to make the place even darker. There was a piano. There was a man at the table next to me by himself. He just dropped in to keep out of the rain, too. He smiled at me and said... What a shame it was to make the day even gloomier with a piece of music like that. I said, but wasn't it a waltz? And he said, yes, but not one of the light romantic Viennese ones. It was an English one. Celebrating the most depressing of all English seasons. <laughs> most English music. Elgar say makes you want to throw yourself in front of a train. I argued. I quite like Elgar. That was how it began. We sat there together for hours it wouldn't be possible to confuse that waltz tune with a hymn uh, I wouldn't know I have a tin ear everybody so... has a piece of music that means something special you must have one uh, oh. take me out to the ball game take me out to the crowd <laughs> buy me some peanuts and crack it that's the most romantic song you know yeah, I'm a simple guy a beer and a bag of nuts it's my idea of heaven Oh, it's my job to ask you when you last saw him. That day, the day he left on the 10th of April, we separated with an argument I didn't want him to go. I had a cold, I felt miserable, I didn't want to be left alone. He hesitated at the door, I sensed it but didn't turn. Then he turned and was gone. Perhaps if I'd turned... You never got a chance to say a real goodbye. I had a chance to say a proper farewell to him on the passage here. I came by the White Star Line, the Olympic. If the weather's fine, they stopped the engines near where the Titanic's distress calls were sent from. The ones they ignored. The captain lowers a wreath. There are often passengers with their own wreaths or mementos. I stayed in my cabin. A private farewell. Shouldn't you imagine... That if you were on a ship that was beginning to sink in a place where you despaired of rescue, shouldn't you remember what the band was playing? If you survived such terror, would you ever forget one single thing? How would that be possible? You see the hook? It's a hook. You bet it's a hook. 
That is quite a hook. You could pitch the socks off a hook like that. It would ride itself. You figure? You bet. I'm getting the tingle in the fingers here, like I'm about ready to hit the underwood. <laughs> As the busy life of the New York street went on around us, I began, for the first time, to understand her obsession. Uh, Strike that. Quest. Her quest for an answer. Their love was cemented, kindled by music. So it is no wonder that when all the certainties she built her hopes on had sunk beneath the waves, she would seek one final certainty. That's a little ripe for the city, Page. Yeah, I'll work on it. But if I'm going to run with this, I got to ask if you're not just trying to raise a ghost. Huh? Fooling yourself that maybe the guy's still alive. Hoping against hope that he survived. He got off the boat somehow. He's he's wandering the streets of New York, and you're going to miraculously... Oh, oh, there he is, turning that corner. No, he's walking past that window. Isn't that him? Yeah, maybe he's the drunk guy with the sporting girl on his arm. What would happen if I slapped your face? I might slap you back. Yes. I believe you might. You see, I covered a big fire here last year. 150 women burned to a crisp in a sweatshop. One guy still refuses to accept that he's lost his wife and two daughters. Shows up every day looking for them. Maybe that's you. <laughs> Have you heard of Sigmund Freud? Sure, German sex maniac. Austrian. Doctor. You really said that. Sex maniac? What do I know from Austria? He's perhaps the greatest thinker of our age, the explorer of the self... He'd say that when you say such vile things to someone you've just met, it's not because you're a reporter. There's something else. Something inside you. Something that wants to offend, to push others away because you couldn't bear them to know who you really are. I could turn on the Irish charm if you wanted me to. Charm is a kind of bullying. A way of getting what you want. You won't bully me. You know what, sweetheart? This isn't going to work out. I'm sorry you lost your guy. I wish you well looking for answers, but I think you might be a little buggy. Buggy? As in Bug House, the Funny Farm, the Laughing Academy. Like like Bellevue Hospital on the east side, where they cage the nutjobs who see things that aren't there. To be honest with you, Miss Hinton, really honest, you look like bad luck. You said that to her? Told her to take a hike? Feel the breeze, yeah. Bad luck? I got that feeling. Or had she nailed you? Got a little too close for comfort. I want somebody to look inside my head. I'll ask a bartender. They always know. So that's it. You blew it. Again, yeah. Then? What if there was no iceberg? What? What if the Titanic never hit an iceberg? What if it sank for another reason? What if it was intended to sink? Or some people knew it was likely to sink. What if... My fiancé and all the others were murdered. She said that. Yeah. Exact words again. Print um. No iceberg. Murder. Print um. Which is when I think she's... Or it could be I have more than a synopsis to piece here. Could be I have a page one lead under a headline in size 28 font. You haven't had one of those since Gutenberg was in short pants. But go on. I like the appetizers. What's the entree? Ghosts, Mr. Malloy. I know all about them. 
I walked with them for day after day, with him and all those other doomed people who had no idea the ship was on fire when it left port. Say that again. They call them bunker fires. The coal in the stokehold spontaneously combusts. They're almost impossible to put out. This is a photograph from a Belfast newspaper on the day it launched. You can see where the paint blistered. What if it weakened the hull? Don't I remember seeing a photo of the iceberg a couple of days later? Explain that. This one? Yeah, the guy said that that this line here was a red streak of paint, the same color as a ship. I see only black and white. The photographer said it was red. And no doubt sold the photograph for a handsome sum. I still see no proof. Don't you believe what your eyes are telling you? It's the eye of a camera telling me this. Why should I trust it? The lookout saw an iceberg. He shouted a warning. He says he did, yes. But he also said he shouted too late. Because he had no binoculars. They had been locked in a cupboard whose key had been left behind. Is that not a strange and convenient circumstance? And before you ask whether the rest of the crew can confirm there was an iceberg, they were too busy warning the passengers that something had happened. Something. 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 The ship slows as hundreds of tons of water flow into it. No passengers know why. If someone in uniform tells them it was an iceberg, who would argue? Cold, panicked, confused, half-dressed, woken suddenly from sleep. There's so much about this. About what happened to him and the others that I don't know. I admit it. But once you question what the band was playing, you begin to ask what else you must not take on trust. This is a very emotional time for you. I get that. Oh, I'm a woman and I'm letting my feelings get in the way. The company already admitted the captain shouldn't have been driving so fast through an area known for icebergs that time of year. You've yet to prove there was an iceberg. <laughs> You've yet to prove there wasn't. Of course, if you're relying on uh, female intuition... On the facts, on what we know. But you claim the right to draw inferences from those facts based on uh, intuition, feminine logic. You say my fiancé died because of an iceberg. I say, is that proven? You say it does not have to be proven. Your belief it was there is enough. That is masculine logic, it seems to me. Or Irish logic. What is it you want to prove? I just want to be told the truth. This is not grief. It is anger. And I will not let go of it until I get the answers. You must help me get them. You must. (sighs) I might be a pretty battered round specimen of an angel, but uh, who knows? Yeah, I could be an angel of truth here. Do you get paid for writing things like that? It's the 20th century, the era of the common man. That's our reader. you got to grab his attention. To what end? Entertainment or to inform him? Well, you, you have to toss a few shiny balls in the air to get him to start reading and keep reading. There were shipyard men still finishing the ship while it sailed. How could that be? How was it possible yet it happened and most of them died? Their names were in the newspapers. In Belfast, I asked about each of them. Every door slammed in my face, except one. If you really want a story, take me here. I need to meet this man. He's the brother of one of those men who didn't come back. This one is living here in New York, so his wife says. 
She didn't want to give me the address at first, but when I said I'd lost someone too... Did it show me? Oh. Red Hook, Brooklyn? That isn't just the lower depths. That's the cellar underneath them. It's a grabber. It's more than a grabber. If she's nuts? If she's on the level. I'd need it exclusive. Oh, I'd be happy to give it away for free, but my rent is due on Friday. Rent? Last I heard, you were sleeping on a bench at McSorley's old alehouse. Huh. Take this to the guy with the green eye shade two offices down. He's an old Hearst hand, so he'll try to pay you in wooden nickels. Exclusive to this newspaper. Okay. Red Hook. Stay real close to me. What are those? They're brass knuckles. I used to do the waterfront beat. There are 500 miles of working waterfront in New York and Jersey. You can get your throat cut in any one of them. I live near Red Hook in Brooklyn. It's not a place you'd like to be in the early hours of any morning, even now. But I see Emma jut out her chin, take her courage in hand, and walk down those mean, narrow, cobbled dockside streets alongside Malloy. Malloy's a tough guy. He's seen and heard it all. But even he's not prepared for what the nervous, tightly wound man who steps out of the shadow of a warehouse is about to tell him. I worked in the drawing office at Harland and Wolf, that's right. I was proud of it too. Proud of everything to do at that place. We span a ribbon of Belfast steel around the whole world. They say there's not a port that doesn't have a Belfast-built ship in it. There wouldn't be an empire without us. We're its kidneys and sinews and guts. A man could hold his head up for being part of it. Boast in the Lord, yes, but in his own strength too. Until 401 came along. 401? The job number they gave the Titanic. Excuse me while I spit. You had a bad feeling about it? I had pride in it, mister. At first, a ship is a thought before it's a thing. We were going to think a palace afloat. Brass, mahogany, steel. We'd knit them together, send her down the ways and say, that's another. Then I saw the specifications for the keel plate. Until then, this was going to be the biggest thing that ever sailed. You could tell your grandkids you helped build it. Yeah, let's stick with the keel plate. It's the spine of the ship. Once it's off the ways, nobody sees it again. But everything hangs on it. You'll, uh... Take a wee nip, Mr. McBride. Keep the cold out. I wouldn't need whiskey to loosen my tongue, Mr. Reporter, even if I touch the stuff, which I don't. Mm. <clears throat> he was in the band, your man. Yes. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. He believed that music was indeed a gift of God. Anything you can tell me. Anything. You're sure you want to take the risk of knowing it? Why? Who are you scared of, Mr. McBride? Me? I'm heart scared of everybody and everything to do with yon ship. I still need to know. I have to know. Does Mr. Reporter there have a pencil at all? And a jotter? Yeah. The sharp end is the bow. The end you've chewed on is the stern. When a ship's floating, it's supported by water along its entire length. 
In 401's case, that was 900 feet. No one had ever built one that long. That's why I queried it, sir. Why exactly? If a ship finds itself straddling two waves, it happens in all kinds of seas, there's only bare metal to support it. It's hanging in the air. The entire weight of the ship is bearing down on one solitary point, you get me? Now, that ship dead-weighted at 53,000 tonnes. There's no metal known to man could withstand that. So, what happens? Those articles about the watertight compartments make it unsinkable. You couldn't all just be baloney and bull. I wouldn't know about them. That would be more your line of work than mine. They call them newspaper stories, don't they? Not newspaper truths. And mind your language in front of the wee girl. Lose the keel plate, you lose the ship. It's as simple as that. Maybe that's why the Rothschilds refused to insure it. Lloyd's had to scramble to get their underwriters to step up. Even then, they only managed to cover some of the risk. When it sailed, it was underinsured. Perhaps because they knew the hull was already weak because of the fire in the stokehold. You're sharp. You should be in the knife drawer. That stokehold was three stories high. It held six and a half thousand tons of Welsh coal that burns at a thousand degrees. They had twelve men working on it non-stop, but couldn't put out the fire. And I'd keep my mouth shut about what you know, my dear, if I was you. Or you might find yourself taking a long walk off a short pier. In episode one of Ghosts of the Titanic by Ron Hutchinson, Emma was played by Genevieve Gaunt and Danny Malloy by John Hopkins. Flora Swanson was Lizzie McInerney and William McBride, Fergal McElheron. The narrator was Ron Hutchinson. Music was by Steve Edis and sound design Joe Bedell Brill. Ghosts of the Titanic was directed by Owen O'Callaghan and it was a Big Fish radio production for Radio Ulster. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.